Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with extended clip. Away we go. I'm focus on enunciating yeah. this episode. Yeah. Talking in a very relaxed I, and well-spoken manner. Yeah, I think this is going to be the the cleanest spoken episode that I ever do. I think for this final season, we need to take it back to the fundamentals. You know, you see why players like Tim Duncan aged so gracefully because he stuck true to the fundamentals. And we're not one of these flashy hip hop style podcasts. No, <laughs> no off the field antics. You know what I mean? We're really dedicated. To the craft and it's really it's taken over our lives and i think that's why people like us it's taken over our lives and that's why we have to abandon it so welcome True. to the final season <laughs> of extended clip uh it's episode 122 i'm one of your hosts eddie averill i'm malcolm Baum. i'm jt white and our double feature this week to start off our third and final abridged season it's a tone setter i'm to, to use the title of our new sister-in-law podcast, I'm throwing down the gauntlet for what <laughs> this season is going to entail. Rio Bravo, the 1959 film by Howard Hawks, and Assault on Precinct 13, the 1976 film by John Carpenter. Uh, had you guys seen both of these films before? One? None? I'd, I'd seen Rio Bravo before, but I feel like I kind of gave it one of those kind of hazy unattentive watches you know i was i don't know I, I feel like i didn't give it the full attention a classic deserved beforehand so i was really happy to revisit it here and then on assault with uh with precinct 13 on on. Precinct i think it's 15. assault uh and precinct 13 <laughs> assault <laughs> with, uh i'd never i never caught it before but i'm obviously you know as someone who's seen a lot of movies a big john carpenter fan so as I, anyone who's seen a lot yeah. of movies yeah. should be so um, I was, you know, hyped to see this one. And you know what? Both these movies, pretty good. You know, I think they are, you know, known to be good for a reason because yeah. there's a lot of good shit in them. Yeah, I have seen Rio Bravo before. It's been a few years, but I loved it then. And uh, I don't know, was really itching to rewatch. And Precinct 13 was a first time for me. But yeah, we love John Carpenter. The way you said pretty good, Malcolm, I know you're being facetious, but <laughs> it, it triggered me because last night the three of us were all attending a screening of quite a major film uh, like the ones we're talking about today. It was a screening of Edward Yang's A Brighter Summer Day. And so, you know, we got this trio of tough guys behind us, right? Yeah, yeah uh, tough guys. They're, they're rep <laughs> repertory house tough guys. And they're talking about how, you know, they didn't like the Siming Lang film they saw like last week or something. I, I think they didn't like Days or maybe something like that. But uh, regardless, I was just thinking, well, as long as they keep their mouth shut during the movie, I'll be fine. They did keep their mouth shut during the movie. But the second the credits roll, one of them turns to the other and says, it's pretty good. A bit long. Dang, these you know you go to these these art house theaters, these repertory theaters. You got some highly opinionated people, man. You and know, they people. want the people three rows ahead, behind, and ten seats to either side to know what those opinions are. You know, they watch a four hour movie. You know, they kind of are a little lukewarm on it. They might you know give a, a loud sigh to indicate you know their <laughs> you know dissatisfaction. You know, it, 
it happens it happens so. uh it, it was more that like i could tell it was locked and loaded like jt you heard malcolm was not sitting with us but jt you heard the oh comment, yeah correct? it was uh i don't know it was a bad one i think this is the this toxic film bro culture yes. is part of the reason why also I, i'm stepping down that's We're you know retiring i'm too sick <laughs> the in look everywhere around you you're overwhelmed by it it just makes me sick and i, I don't know yeah, I saw over like a weekend ago, I was like, oh, Heat's playing at like the new Beverly. You know, I'll go get a ticket. Little do I know it's all sold out because of all the toxic man bros. Yes. They had to rush to go, you know, get the tickets in advance and, you know, maybe not consider some of the people who didn't know about it. Uh, up the until LA recently. rep scene for you. So it's just, it's kind of growing more and more toxic. So yeah, I guess that's why the podcast is shutting <laughs> down. We're kind of disgusted with the state of movie watching recently. We in don't want Los Angeles. In Los Angeles. So we don't want to encourage anymore. But. For now, we do. For now, you know, during the episode, you know, you should uh, watch these movies that we're going to talk about. As Serge Tankian of System of a Down once sang, the toxicity of the city. Uh, but I wanted to bring up A Brighter Summer's Day also because there's a scene where the character, don't you love when this happens? You're watching a movie in the theater. Then some of the characters in the movie are watching a movie in the theater. Uh, really makes you think, but yeah. the, there was a great movie theater scene in a brighter summer's day where I was happy that I could recognize uh, the movie they were watching. That was only you know they, they didn't show the screen; it was just by audio, and it was of course the climactic shootout of Rio Bravo. Uh, and you know it was very tasteful of Edward Yang to get all that stuff. You know Dean Martin saying I could drag him across, and you know. Uh, uh, Ricky Nelson throwing him the gun and cutting it right before Walter Brennan shows up because it's all about tonal control, you know, movies like that. You can't have him coming in saying, "Oh, I brung me some dynamite" in, a, yeah. in an Edward Yang movie. It just, it's you're already pushing the line with John Wayne showing up. Uh, but regardless, I think that leads us into Rio Bravo, the 1959 film by Howard Hawks, and it was made after the longest hiatus of his career. You know, he has this like late period run of films after this that takes him another decade plus but this was after a four-year hiatus after some not so successful films and Howard Hawks he always kind of worked as much of an independent or sorry worked as as much of an independent filmmaker as you could be making big studio films in the classic Hollywood era. Uh, you know, he never n necessarily got nailed down to any studio and wanted to make movies his way. Luckily, his way is very crowd-pleasing for the most part. Uh, but this was a film that he made, shocker, uh, because of the influence of television. When he came back from Europe, he was like, Oh, and by the way, his hiatus, he was hanging out in Europe where the real ones respected him. You know, they already treated him as a high art. I, I, I don't quite know what the auteurist scene was when he was hanging out there pre-Rio Bravo, but he comes back to the States and he gets really interested in the storytelling modes of the TV Western, which is sweeping the nation at the moment. And he, he's interested that people are coming back for character rather than plot. Then you look back and you think, well, Howard Hawks movies... I'm not exactly going to recite the plot to you. You know, there's great moments, there's great scenes, there's great characters, and there's amazing dialogue and a pitch-perfect sense of form that just guides you through it. 
So at this point, he almost has this self-realization, it seems like, through this movie that, oh, I can make a movie on vibes alone. And here he does that so magnificently. Uh, You have, of course, John Wayne, uh, Walter Brennan, as we mentioned already. I mean, he's fifth build, but we'll we'll get to him. I mean, Stumpy is a character who should be in every movie. Of course. I... And I feel like he talks maybe the most in this movie, too. Exactly. <laughs> For being billed yeah. below everyone else, you know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we have John T. Chance played by John Wayne. You have Dude played by Dean Martin, the recovering alcoholic former sheriff. You have a little old lady who floated into a town running away from some card games named Feathers played by Angie Dickinson. Uh, And you also have another man that was on that stage, a young fella, a teen idol, who was blowing up and uh, was already a superstar before he turned 18 in Ricky Nelson, uh, playing Colorado. So as you can tell with the addition of Walter Brennan as Stumpy, that this is a film full of great character names. And they're going to (laughs) say those names when they refer to each other, and it's always going to be funny. And uh, some of the greatest actors of the era... And it's been canonized as one of the great films for a reason. But we'll we'll try and come up with some somewhat original things to say about it, maybe. Did you mention Ward Bond as of well? Of course, we, Ward oh, yeah, Bond, who get, you know... It, it, small performance, but uh, impactful. Yeah, of course. It's almost like a little John Ford reunion when him and Wayne are talking in the saloon right before Ward Bond gets capped uh, in the street in cold blood. This is, a, this is a violent movie for as much of it as... As much of it is just like hanging out and soaking in the vibes and this amazing dialogue and also the great wordless scenes such as the opener, uh, quite a bit of violence in this movie. No, yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, you listing all the the traits that this movie has, like, you know, it is very character driven and it's, I think it's length is so appropriate because it's like character building, you know, quote unquote type stuff. But also just kind of like capturing the mood of the town with like kind of like these silent scenes. And then like, you know, it has like this hangout atmosphere, you know, what, what it's so you know famous for. But then, you know, these kind of spurts of violence kind of are, you know, are so well calibrated and kind of come in and just uh, really kind of disrupt the flow of this movie. And it's like, yeah, I feel like it's it's kind of pacing is what kind of makes it unique and its willingness to like just go long on certain things like like you know kind of like ward bond and his character at the beginning kind of like the little rapport that him and john wayne have you know what i mean that's not something you necessarily you know if you're making this movie by the numbers you're like well you know you could cut that out because that's not you know that important but it's like it adds um you know so much richness to you know what's going on and part of why you know this movie is so well heralded Also, so there's another, you know, impotence for the movie being made beyond his influence uh, by television. There's also, of course, it as a rebuttal of sorts to High Noon, which, you know, uh, if you take a quick glance at Wikipedia, you'll see, oh, this is like the reactionary, you know, (laughs) dispelling of the liberal, uh, you know, critique of McCarthyism in High Noon. And, you know, you can make that standpoint, too. And maybe that's John Wayne's uh, real viewpoint going into it. But for Howard Hawks, his objections to High Noon were tactical rather than political. 
uh, if you look up what he actually said about the movie, all he cares about is the tactics. He just think Gary Cooper, he just thinks Gary Cooper wasn't a very good cop in that movie. (laughs) uh, Wasn't a very good sheriff. And it's like, you got to make movies about people who are good at their jobs. Like if you're not doing that, why are you even watching movies? And of course that professionalism is such a, you know, trademark of Hawks's movies that, yeah, that I'm sure that bothered him more than any (laughs) political implications. And so this movie is about people who only take help from professionals. You know, he'd rather have, you know, these broken people who are professionals than well-meaning amateurs. uh, John Wayne would. Yeah, we need we need more response movies like this. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It, It inspires possibly some great art. Like maybe someone needs to kind of respond to like nomad land and kind of you know <laughs> put nomad land in it in its place you just know make with, like a harmony corinne style movie that's just like a mirror image of nomad land but just like really fucked up instead of like how chloe's out presents it yeah exactly a lot of like farts or whatever yeah. you know what i mean so i don't know i don't you know we could workshop that later you know what i yeah. mean but it's it is like yeah it is i knew that about the movie but of course i you know i never looked more into the details but it is like you know you, you hear it's like oh this is like hawk's response to high noon a movie i've i've never seen high noon it's just very funny that like you know at a glance you'd be like oh he's just like a response to the libs man he's just putting them in his place but like you said it's probably not that cut and dry <laughs> uh so we talked about that opening sequence and well I, I i very briefly mentioned it but it is of course a silent sequence that is just such a great way to, as we said earlier, throw down the gauntlet for how effective Hawks is as a filmmaker and just setting the table for what's to come as you have, uh, you know, Dean Martin, you know, just getting humiliated, trying to fetch this coin out of a spittoon to buy himself a drink. And you have that incredible low angle shot uh, of John Wayne after he kicks the the spittoon away to introduce it. And I feel like it's very rare. It's that and when the blood is dripping down from the rafters of the saloon an hour and a half later. Uh, o- only a few times like that where you have those really exaggerated high angle or low angle shots. For the most part, it is almost televisual. It's just that he's making all the right moves while shooting, you know, in a very basic stayed eyeline level style and then those shots just totally like throw you into the drama they become so much more dramatic yeah and it's also like what kind of he's doing with like kind of like the landscape of the movie that like this televisual style makes interesting kind of like when i was talking about how like i don't know like the different moods that kind of mesh into one each other like it is like kind of like you know instead of him going with a more exaggerated style for a more intense scene it kind of makes it feel kind of like a, a, I don't know, more like a complete work in a way, you know, him just kind of uh, sticking to the basics and kind of just trusting his own storytelling instincts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I really vibe with what you're saying there, Malcolm, about like how he like sort of the juggles, the tones and moods, because it's like he's hitting all of them in like such a pitch perfect way where it's like, you'll get some tension with like sort of the real main plot about, uh, the jail, but then you'll, you get a little aside with John Wayne, uh, chopping it up with Angie Dickinson, just yeah. sort of flirting like that. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I don't know. He balances all these fun and interesting little side stories in this that aren't like, I don't know, don't feel propulsive, but are just like, even if it's not a happy vibe to hang out in yeah. all the time, like uh, alcoholism, yeah. it's still like, uh, I don't know, it's 
interesting to you you get every sort of feeling no yeah and like to talk about like kind of like uh you know dean martin's like alcoholism subplot it takes up like a lot more of the movie than i remember like Mm -hmm. it is like you know for as uh you know this movie's trying to own the libs or whatever it is a pretty old west-ish but kind of a tolerant view of like alcoholism you know the way wayne kind of deals with him and like kind of goes at you know dean martin characters like uh own pace and kind of like you know is like willing to like i know you're a drunk but like maybe i could get you some beer and like we could you know so you don't get the shake so hard or whatever and it's uh i don't know like like you said eddie you know hawks loves people being good at their jobs and i guess this is hawks's ideal sheriff not only you know quote unquote protecting the town but improving you know the moral fortitude of the characters who live within the town and uh and you know? being able to flirt with the hot lady. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, hey, you know, who is I mean? also able to keep up with the fellas yeah. <laughs> per usual in Howard Hawks movies. I mean, you know, you know, your name like Feathers. You know, you know, she's you know, she's been around. She's sent to seen every type of a cat. Yeah. So you know what I mean. She'll be able to keep up with the boys, no problem. And if you've seen a lot of '30s and '40s Howard Hawks movies, or even early '50s Howard Hawks movies leading up to this, like a lot of the plot machinations and a lot of even certain situations feel very familiar and you know it's co-written by two people who had written for hawks before you know you have uh jules firthman and lee brackett and you know between them you got like the big sleep only angels have wings to have and have not you know a bunch of the classics and you know and then you think about like the the kiss scene uh, between Bogart and Bacall and to have and have not, and then the way that uh, John Wayne and Angie Dickinson just kind of stretch that idea out into like a three or four minute scene rather than a little exchange. And it, it, it really is like one of the great, you know, kind of late style films where you're just picking and plucking from 20 years of filmmaking uh, and extending it all to its like logical conclusions. And it's crazy that he made a bunch of movies after this. Yeah, like and like weren't like a lot of those movies kind of like goofier too or something like that. Like, I, I haven't seen yeah, much yeah. of them, but it seems. But he has a lot of comedies before. Yeah, like I know uh, Man's Favorite Sport comes after, which yeah. I've been looking forward to watching. No, but yeah, it is like just looking at this work from like the like the perspective. Like we got a seasoned veteran, you know, going on here. It is like, I mean, you could tell obviously, you know, just the way like. I don't know, he's making decisions to, like, have kind of, like, these silent scenes or whatever. Or, like, I feel like, like, I don't know, like, Wayne, he, like, he, I feel like he doesn't talk as much as he would in, like, you know, other movies. He's kind of, like, happy to kind of use, like, the iconography of Wayne. I don't know. And, like, the way, like, Walter Brennan is kind of used feels like, you know what I mean? It's, at the same time, it's, like, almost so so automatic, like, you wouldn't even really need to, like, think about it. It's like, oh, yeah, he's a comedic relief character. He comes in with, you know, the wacky remark, you know, here and there. But, like, I feel like every time he does it, he's just, like, piercing the silence that kind of, uh, like, is uh, goes over the movie. And, like, the way Brennan's used to just kind of uh, give, like, a spike of energy to the movie, I think, is really interesting. What do you think I'm doing? Taking a siesta? I brought this from Dynamite. Good idea. Uh, I should clarify. I said a bunch. He made five movies after this, three of which were westerns that I think resemble Rio Bravo, at least two of which. Um, but regardless, 
So yeah, I mean, we we kind of set up who the characters are, which is most of what happens in the movie. Uh, but you also have the Burdett brothers, who uh, you know, one of them uh, gets arrested after that opening shootout scene. The other one and his gang want to break him out. So you know, it it, it becomes a siege film uh, <laughs> as the. Uh, subgenre, I guess, would later be called, and especially in Assault on Precinct 13, kind of leaning into that. It, when all of these guys end up outnumbering your your tight knit crew, and uh, they ambush John Wayne at one point, they get Dean Martin out of it and are willing to, you know, exchange him. But of course, the laws got to be laid down. It's not going to be one of these even exchanges. Mm-hmm. What you're used to with a shootout in one of these kind of scenarios in a classic Hollywood Western, it goes on about 10 times longer than that. Like the yeah. film has all been building up to this. It's a very uh, slowly paced out. You know, you're already two hours into this movie when this climactic handoff of people is going to happen where it's like implied there's definitely going to be a little shoot 'em up action, you know. Mm. But then just more people just start appearing in the scene from like the guy who runs the hotel showing up at first and then Stumpy showing up after they told him not to and coming through with the dynamite, which is a great <laughs> addition to it, just leaning into the destruction of the movie and uh you know he opens he only opens up his circle to a little bit of amateur help you know that, yeah. that's been if john wayne's character changes at all in the movie it's that maybe he's a little more open with how much he wants to have sex with angie dickinson <laughs> all right <laughs> and, i'll do it yeah it's very, it's very funny how reluctant he is throughout the movie despite yeah. it being implied that they do it for sure like yeah. multiple yeah. times even i guess because if you imply the ending as well uh because they do have a night together where it's yeah, pretty yeah, they, implied. They yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, so, I noticed. <laughs> so, so, sorry, Hayes Code, but we're gonna say <laughs> what they had to leave out on the film. They had sex. <laughs> I can't but, say it too loud. Yeah, <laughs> I was gonna say it loud. That was yeah. Joseph L. Breen might hear me. <laughs> that made it kind of like a more. You kind of set this the sexiness to the scene. You know what I mean? That kind of like sensual whisper to the listeners. As much as we just like hammered through the plotting here i think it's clear that like this whole film is just made up of kind of great moments you know you have that famous uh, howard hawks quote that goes around you know whatever it's a you know uh three great scenes and no bad ones you know that's a good movie this is just like all of those just like effortlessly great scenes building one after another filled with just small things that make them up like the way that stumpy you know shoots anyone who walks through the (laughs) fucking uh sheriff's office doors without calling out beforehand and the way that john wayne uh can you know wave a bottle around and dean martin's eyes will just follow it around the room kind of (laughs) and all these little things and the way that uh that feathers can you know palm cards in her hands and stuff like that just like uh the the evolution of all these just pure hangout great character moments that Hawks has built his cinema upon uh, it's just always firing on all cylinders here I mean what I'm sure other people have basically said the same thing for 50 years now but mm-hmm. it's still true given it, like it's pacing you know what I mean rather it going from point A to point B it kind of just walks around the place like it is I don't know it's it's just full of you know different moments. 
that uh you know that could seem similar to one another but like i don't know just have a, a lot of different nuances that that make them great like like you said with like uh i love i love the scene where uh dean martin and john wayne you know first uh ambush that bar where they you know where i think they're looking for the person wha- who killed ward bond the mm-hmm. ward bond character and like yeah you get to see dean martin kind of you know prove his potential yeah. as a <laughs> as a you know a, a deputy or whatever and like the the way that like the tension builds in that scene you know and like the reveal of like the blood dripping in like the beer mug and uh you know the slight variation and then the, the sick turnaround shot by uh old dino you know it's it's just a very uh triumphant moment for like a a character who you know we see struggle a lot through the movie and like i like uh it is like you know something like or like a struggling alcoholic or whatever it almost could make it sound like a I don't know like a screenplay trope character or whatever but like the way all these elements kind of like coalesce with one another just I don't know you know Hawks even though I guess he didn't write this right or, well he yeah, rewrote the he shit rewrote out of it. He most it. of his yeah. movies he yeah. reworked the dialogue okay well then yeah then yeah so yeah Hawks Hawks knows you know he's knows he's no amateur obviously at yeah. this point he's he's a, a seasoned veteran. No, yeah, in, in one of the behind-the-scenes things I was watching for this, uh, I guess Howard Hawks said that in the beginning he was worried that he like wasn't going to cut it because Dean Martin was doing, as he called it, nightclub drunk. <laughs> <laughs> that's Well, that's, you know, thinking of the legacy of Dean Martin, he's like a very different type of oh, drunk yeah. than yeah, the drunk sure. in this movie. He's like a very, like, wine, you know, la- you know I'm singing at the you know the lounge the friars type club mm-hmm. yeah like roasting his famous buddies yeah mm-hmm. like smooth older hot guy this drunk is, this yeah. is mournful drunk mournful well i was just thinking it's like the this wild is west sick drunk yeah <laughs> wild west you know it's like that people just had to be getting drunk off their fucking ass like all the time you know what i mean no, what one, else? no one drinks a lick of water in this movie <laughs> <laughs> like what else are you gonna do over there like there's only so many jobs you know what i mean i yeah. feel like there's definitely half the town's just drunk as shit i mean you know when the when the gang ambushed dino and fucking uh basically waterboarded him that you know that's as hydrated as he is throughout the whole fucking movie probably well, true i mean you heard brennan kept telling him to take a fucking bath you know maybe yeah. that's oh, that yeah. was part of the they're like oh this guy stinks this yeah stinks. he just st- he's walking around <laughs> with mud on his face for like 30 minutes of this movie and john wade's like yeah you might want to get a shower he's like yeah i'll take care of that later <laughs> how about you hit it now pal he does tell him that he stinks during what might be the most iconic scene of the movie, uh, the the ultimate male camaraderie scene, maybe in any Howard Hawks movie, of course, when they sing "My Rifle, My Pony, and Me," which I mean, the sun is sinking in the west, the cattle go down to the stream, the red wing settles in her nest. It's time for a cowboy to dream. Purple light in the canyon, that's where I long to be with my three good companions. Just my rifle, pony, and me. There's really nothing else to be said about that scene that hasn't been yet. It's just ultimate bonding, good vibes. 
and kind of kind of that meditative feeling uh, before a big action scene that you know no matter what comes next is going to be intensified by the the bond that was formed in the scene before. It's like that that scene, the pre gaming scene, and we are your friends. You know, it's I mean? like Where, that. Uh, you know the the guy who dies in that movie is like, this is always my favorite part of the night before it all starts, <laughs> yeah. before it all begins. Here with my bros pre gaming. You know, I I love that scene. You know, for all the obvious reasons, but also it kind of just like Hawks just kind of inserts it like. You know what I mean? It's not exactly like linear with the oh, plot that was going it on. It yeah. fades from black yeah. after yeah. another scene. Like you have to take the logical step from the scene before to all four of them just like being okay with each other, uh, hold up in you know the back room or whatever. And uh, yeah, it just fades in from black and then fades out at the end. It's just like its own little isolated thing in a vacuum. No, yeah, it's it's a nice kind of a connector or staple in that sense. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the good guys win, and uh, yeah. uh, sex is implied as her stockings <laughs> fly out yeah. the window and land uh, on Stumpy, who fashions <laughs> it into a scarf. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Hey, everybody wins. Everybody, everybody, everybody wins. gets some. You better believe Stumpy's jacking off to that. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, you know, it, you know, it's funny. Like, I think there's a, a little throwaway line where he's, like, telling Wayne, he's like, make sure to, like, knock before you guys come back because he has to stay at the yeah. the prison every time they go out and do stuff and it's like you know he was catching a quick little J.O. session well that's why he fires his gun at anyone <laughs> yeah. who walks in with it. it's like I don't shoot it off yeah. <laughs> that's a sick cover up like you know you get caught you're like no I'm protecting you yeah. know the place that's why that's why he had to <laughs> shoot at Dean Martin yeah he was about to bust <laughs> Uh, this is just the best movie. I, I really can't talk about it without gross hyperbole, so I'll just say that it deserves a full five bullets. Yeah, I'm going to go four and a half bullets. I mean, yeah, I think rewatching it now, like, I definitely got a better grasp on it, and, like, I don't know, it is, it is like, the more I think about it, it's very just unique in, in like uh, it's kind of particular uh, feeling that the the movie kind of culminates in, and I mean yeah, Hawks, you know like his forties movies or whatever, like something like To Have and To Have Not, like maybe it's just the difference in genres, but it just feels like he has such great range, you know, yeah. as a director and like can uh, pull off so many different things while while not being like the most like visually stylistic like you know uh flashy or you know so to speak like he just i don't know i feel like he does stuff with like pacing that is just uh you know kind of head and shoulders above everyone else but yeah he uh i don't know can really just have some excellent staging and character work and yeah. really let that uh i don't know tell show its own but i'm gonna go uh five bullets uh for this one I love it. it's a classic it like I don't know, mines the depths of the whole range of human experience here. When Colorado walks in and it's just like him and Walter Brennan looking at each other, it's like that's the full age range of yeah. Hollywood stardom. It just, with that, like, I don't know, I think Hangout movies, oftentimes you just think of them as like solely the fun like kind of vibe. And this is for a lot of it, and there is um, so much of that there, but just you get all types of different like beautiful poetic experiences and just i don't know i think i mean working within the western i think the 
like sort of simmering violence that happened is always like underneath there is like a particularly like American thing, particularly mm-hmm. with even someone like uh, Stumpy, who is the comic relief, but is just many times just talking about how ready he is to kill <laughs> and, and just itching to go to action. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just, uh, it's the fun before going out. It's the, the best pregame ever. <laughs> uh, we'll be right back on Extended Clip. Do you think he's going to Swedish anywhere? Well, he threw me my gun, and while it was still in the air, he got one of them, then he got another one. Good enough, good enough. See, <laughs> as good as I used to be? It'd be pretty close. I'd hate to have to live on the difference. And we're back. On extended clip. It's everybody's favorite segment. Malcolm in the middle. Life is unfair. Malcolm, how was your week? You know what? I kind of kind of went by fast. I didn't really even get a chance to even know how I feel about it. But you know, okay, at, it, you know, it's like a way, long movie where you need time to process it. Exactly. You know what yeah, I mean? At some point in the middle of next week, you'll know how this past week sure. was. I'll just start weeping out of out of the blue. <laughs> like, that week was so hard. But uh, no. no, I won't do that. Uh, <laughs> that's not something I'll be doing. But you know what I will be doing this week yes. is what I did last week. I'll be watching some movies. <laughs> And, Let's go. and, you know, the one I brought here to this segment, uh, I really enjoyed. It was called The Blue Sky Maiden. It was released in 1957. And it's by uh, Yasuzo uh, Masumura, who I had seen one movie before. I think, uh, yeah, I saw Giants and Toys by him before. And I really liked it. I saw it like a few years ago and always told myself, I need to get more into him. And I just never watched another movie by him. But I finally did. And... This is great. It's about um, Yuko, who's like just graduated high school, I think it seems, and she finds out who her real biological family is after um, being raised by her grandmother. And so, you know, she goes to this family who's kind of like abandoned her. And uh, it's only the dad, you know, you got a dad stepmom situation going on here. And essentially, since they're kind of embarrassed by, you know, the bastard child, they kind of force her to be the maid, like help the maid out at the, you know, at the house, you know, and they're kind of like a more of a middle-class family and she kind of grew up a little bit more impoverished. And it's just her kind of, uh, kind of going through day for day and like trying to find, you know, motivation, the blue sky, she's called the blue sky maiden because of a, a passage, you know, her teacher told her basically saying like, you know, no matter how tough shit gets, look up to the sky, it's blue. You know, keep on grinding. You're going to make it. Essentially, that's what, you know, what the message is. And uh, I don't know. She just kind of uh, finds her way into a more comfortable situation and eventually finds her biological mother who she's like, all right, I'm going to stop living with my stepdad who makes me be a maid. I'm going to live with my mother. We're going to have a nice life together. And I don't know. It's just a it's it's a very, I guess, just kind of, you know, classic story of a you know, just kind of self-determination, but I, I found it quite enjoyable. What about you guys? You I, guys I, I watched a, I like you, I watched a film with a stepmother situation, but I'm not going to talk about it. What about you, JT? Uh, um, I, I'm kind of curious about that now. The Stuck Maiden. <laughs> Go on. Uh, 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 I just can't get over last night uh, doing caught, thinking caught and stuck. <laughs> Uh, are similar. Max Ophel's <laughs> Stuck, starring James Mason. 
because it shouldn't work, but it does. They're like I feel like they're like similar like they're similarly lengthed words. Yeah. If that makes sense. I think you're just thinking about stuck too often and it kind of seeps in and that's what happens. Well, I don't I mean I think I think you're thinking about me thinking about it. So Well you're the, I literally I'm pretty sure you're the one who said while we were discussing caught, I just keep thinking it's called stuck. <laughs> And it sounds like you've thought about that quite a few. <laughs> hey, look, Chasey's brought it up. Um, but but I have watched some movies this week, and I watched one today. It was Heartworn Highways uh, from 1976. It's like uh, sort of a sample of a bunch of country folk uh, guys in the 70s just going around doing their thing. You see um, each one of them sort of perform like a song or two you got towns van sant in there which is he was the main reason why i sought this out i've been listening to a lot of uh, towns albums recently and he's he's a real pimp he's great um and then you have Stephen earl david allen Coe, guy clark uh charlie daniels uh you get a whole nice mix and rather than being like a talking head style doc, it's mostly just like you get some performances, you get them like talking about their lives and whatnot. Um, the stuff with Towns is really cool. You get to see him like sort of, um, it's a mixture of like fun and sad because he's like uh, showing you around like kind of the farm area where he lives and he has like a Coke in his hand and I was like, oh, is this, that's nice. He's drinking a Coke. But I realized underneath his arm is like a uh, a, a big bottle of whiskey and he's, hold, he's like, there's a weird exchange where he has with his girlfriend where he's also holding a gun there as well <laughs> and she's he's trying to pour the whiskey in the Coke and he's asking her to hold the gun for uh, for him. And uh, it's a little uncomfortable on that beat. Um, but that's just sort of the tragedy I've of it all. I've known couples like that. Don't get me started. <laughs> but aside from that, I don't know. It's a lot of fun, like good performances. Like the uh, Towns does Waiting Around to Die in that. And it's uh, really moving. You watch like a man just cry there when he's in the room with him uh, as he does it. And then there's a lot of... Um, like uh boom Hauer style like southern accents in this like there's these two big guys like at a diner talking about like uh, uh um like uh no no dr blues kind of like that you talking not down like that kind of uh, voice like, did you your tongue get burnt off <laughs> and it's like i don't like Do people in the south know how to it's called enunciation you know you read a book sometimes little did you know they're <laughs> eating peanuts while they're talking and also have a lip full of dip at the same time. So that's what kind of creates that effect and that kind of voice. Their cheeks are filled with soda. They did the soda and peanuts combination. That's they're too busy eating soda and peanuts at the same time. They're burrowed up in their cheeks like chipmunks. You got that nice chaw pocket. <laughs> but yeah, it was a good time at the movies. If you're interested in like country music, I would recommend the doc. What about what did you what what did I don't know where those are. <laughs> <laughs> um, aside from note. stuck pornography, what have you? Yeah, besides on, all the porn a, you're watching, all that shit. Note, I watched Brawl in Cell Block ninety nine by S. Craig Zoller, and I'm starting to think this guy voted for freaking Trump. <laughs> Yeah, let's get you know he uh, that'd be sick if he like he look his name up on the donations thing you know see a nice fifteen k told 
Yeah, the 15K <laughs> that he probably couldn't finance one of his movies with. <laughs> the 15K that Cell Block on 99 needed for yeah, some exactly. extra lights. State. <laughs> oh, no. They're basically just making MAGA porn. Did you know that? <laughs> to parse the politics, you need no need go no further than, I don't have it pulled up right now, but I believe on Letterboxd, Felipe Furtado said, uh, it's a liberal's worst nightmare because a conservative made the most effective anti-prison film. And uh, it, it really is just that it's a film about a man who's a broken man. And, you know, whether or not uh, you want to investigate the roots of where that man became broken or not, uh, whether it's a societal issue, a character issue, a filmmaker issue, as some like to pose for some reason, this film is about what happens to him. When he goes to jail, uh, it is a very dark film. It is a very once in a while funny film uh, with Vince Vaughn doing a bit of the same dry mugging as he would do, uh, I guess, one year later for Zoller in Dragged Across Concrete. And I, I, I don't think it's as good as Dragged Across Concrete. I think Dragged is a little like formally further along the road for Zoller, but Brawl is just like texturally so fucked up. It's so visceral. There are skulls being exposed when people get stomped out in this movie. I love that, yeah. There's a bone-crunching feeling that comes from the sound design for the first hour. And then as the violence escalated, you just start actually seeing bones and skulls. And it's disgusting. The, The dude who gets like, I guess cell floor stomped and like you just see a half a second of a white skull come out of his head is just one of the most brutal things i've ever seen i guess you know it's like you know people react to things different way it is like the way the violence is kind of like escalates in this movie also like it's kind of funny to me in a way Mm -hmm. too like just like how it becomes absurd it becomes absurd but i think that's also a big strength of it i mean it's like you already do have kind of like this standard prison movie that's already, you know, pretty, you know, just a, also just a very ugly looking movie that yeah. fits fits the, you know, the tone of what's going on. But also it's like, then it's revealed it's like there's a harsher prison that he has to go to where they're even worse. And yeah. Don Johnson is a, an evil Don Johnson, overlord. Yeah, it looks <laughs> like if. If you kept Inglorious Bastards running for another like 50 years in that timeline, Don Johnson would end up being a prison guard one way or another. Like his character is so cartoonish, uh, but also so purely menacing, you know? Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's a really fucking great performance by Don Johnson. No, yeah, I enjoy this movie. And it, do- it really does, like, not to, like, this almost sounds a dismissal of it, but it really is like, it almost feels like kind of like you know he's a young filmmaker and like this is him kind of figuring out his style and like i feel like dragged is an even you know bigger step even beyond that and i i spoke to the textures earlier and it's not just in the gore of course it's in the set design in general like there's so many dark shots of vaughn in a cell block where it's just like the wall just looks like it's smeared in shit it's just like all these different tones of brown and black on the wall. And there's just stains from over the years. And there's the one cell that's just overfilling with shit. And it's just, I don't know. You can you can smell this film a lot of the time. And it's, it's incredibly brutal. And like, I think it's definitely, I feel like there was maybe an excuse 
for dragged across concrete, like some of the more gnarly things. And it's like, oh, it's like a grindhouse movie. Yeah. This one really does feel like a straight up like prison exploitation down and dirty movie where dragged, I think, to its strengths kind of uh, matches that sensibility with a much more refined style visually. Yeah. Like and also just like I don't know, like I feel like with with dragged, I always feel like Zoller's doing a little bit of like trolling yeah. in that movie. Where and, and like and I guess like this movie doesn't really have layers like that. It's much yeah. more direct. Yeah, this movie is a fucking kick to the head directly into cement. It is <laughs> yeah. just like it is so fucking forceful and direct. Uh, we'll be right back in extended clip. I'm watching this show because I like it. Just so you like your pants. Like, I don't like girls. Like, st- don't imply that I like girls. <laughs> I remember, oh, this is so embarrassing. I think, I don't know if he was like trying to test the waters to see if I was gay or had like just like if I had grown up a little or what. Cause I was like maybe 12 and I was riding in the car with my dad and he was like, so, uh, like Hillary Duff, you think she's cute? <laughs> and I was just like, what? And he's like, that's her name, right? You know, on Disney. And I'm just like, Even at like that young age, I was just like, I know what he's doing. And I was just like, yeah, sure. I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) No, it's uh, my dad's heat checked me a couple times. And like one to where I was old enough. I'm like, you're you're fucking like you're heat checking me, right? You're trying to see if I'm gay. And like, (laughs) it's like, no, I'm not. Like, I think it was very funny. Like he was like 17 and he like he's like tried to imply that I said something to my mom about being gay. I'm like, I've never like, what are you talking about? (laughs) And like. I've never I, talked I, to that bitch in my life. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah maybe you're the gay one. Yeah, she's the last person I talk about. <laughs> what does she know about being gay? But um, <laughs> being, you know, gay man style, so to speak. And uh, but it was and just we'll talk <laughs> about being gay man style on the bonus episode this week at Patreon.com/slash/ExtendedClip, where we talked about Collateral, Michael Mann's uh, beautiful romance between you know I can class and race come aside to forge a beautiful romance between uh, Jamie Fox and Tom Cruise? Find out. <laughs> so yeah, the the conclusion to my to my my saga was I was like, no, I'm straight, dude. <laughs> And uh, I'm sure he believes me still. Still believes me to this day. Hasn't tried to trick me into saying I'm gay. (laughs) Whatever happened to Gary Cooper? Uh, So, (laughs) Assault on Precinct 13 is our B movie this week. It's kind of a, a statement film for John Carpenter, like Rio Bravo was for Hawks, but on the other end of the spectrum. Uh, Carpenter had made a film before this, of course, and made student films, but this was his first film in Cinemascope, and it really it's his first film to feature a just stone-cold fucking classic soundtrack that he put on it. Uh, I mean, we're, we're going to have to drop in that theme right now if I wasn't already playing it, uh, because it's simply like... 
he he would go on to write some incredible fucking themes for his movies, but I don't think he ever quite topped this one for me. The soundtrack seems, you know, this is what they're supposed to do, of course, but like the soundtrack matches like the visual style mm-hmm. of the movie in a way that it's like, I don't know, perfect synthesis. I guess it's, it makes sense because he directed the movie and mm-hmm. did the soundtrack. So he's kind of a little bit more connected than maybe your average composer would be to the image. But uh yeah, this like in terms of, like calling it a statement film, it's like like I feel like a lot of his skills are on display here that you know we see in other movies. Like I, I like I like just to list one. I guess like I've always thought he's had such a great sense of geography, like mm-hmm. in his movies, and like the way like this is kind of like written at the beginning to where it's like you kind of have like these intersecting storylines at like various parts of Los Angeles. Uh, just really kind of like showcases that. But then once it kind of gets to, you know, the precinct and we're kind of there, like the way his visual style, you know, kind of his wide roving cameras, like can just, I don't know, really get the most out of the space. Uh, so JT, had you seen this one before? No, this is my first time. I, have you seen much Carpenter? Yeah, I've seen a lot. I would say. Okay, um, just heat checking you. <laughs> yeah, it's <that> always <laughs> contentious. How much have you seen? I've seen enough. I I. Think... Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I haven't seen enough. I'd like to see his whole filmography, but I've seen enough to confidently assess where this stands in it, and I'd say it's it's up there for me. Yeah, above cigarette burns i haven't seen cigarette burns okay well some fan you are (laughs) (laughs) yeah this is the real the real john carpenter fan out see a lot of you posting about halloween yeah Yeah. congrats never heard of that fucking movie the thing is you don't even get halloween until you see cigarette burns it's a film that didn't come true until 40 years later oh oh, you like the thing i haven't heard about that before yeah how about pro-life you know (laughs) (laughs) what about more messages that are a little bit more controversial to make nowadays huh mm-hmm. how about that how about taking risks <laughs> uh but regardless uh let's get serious you know yeah, let's yeah we we have a lot of fun on this show but there's nothing funny about shooting at a police station no there isn't you really it's really something you shouldn't do <laughs> that's one of my favorite lines in this movie the first time i watched it i, I was just dying at like uh you know after you see just one of the most brutal kills in all of his filmography where the little girl buying ice cream gets gunned down jesus uh when the the shit really starts heating up after that you get the the secretary for the precinct say why would anybody shoot at a police station <laughs> <laughs> and it's, these guys it's that where it's just like that moment where it's just like, oh, this is as much as Carpenter leaned into kind of the grindhouse stylings of his movies. You know, he always has a lot of, not always, but there are a lot of uh, violent scenes in his movies. There are a lot of crazy over-the-top line deliveries. There are a lot of goofy concepts and characters and stuff like that. But this one, you know, even in its cleanest HD form, feels like it's already like it it feels like the first print they struck of this movie was already beaten up and a bunch of people had seen it at 3 a.m already you know it just Mm -hmm. really feels in the groove of those 70s exploitation crime action movies and uh you know for it being carpenter's first cinemascope film he he's quoted as saying it's the most fun he ever had make directing a film and clearly
clearly it's just a director who found the right format for him because he never looked back other than the TV work like Body Bags and the aforementioned uh, masterpieces, uh, Cigarette Burns and Pro-Life. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry to be that guy, but I've seen people defend those films and I... Uh, yeah. I don't know. I'll, I'll I'll watch the ward and get back to you. They we're a pro-choice podcast. <laughs> sorry, 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 listeners. Yeah, the new ones. <laughs> no, but the thing is, pro-life, like as kind of demented as the script is, obviously, and as dumb as a lot of the scenes are, uh, the way they play out, there's at least like a lot of tension and a lot of unease in that movie uh, or in that episode, I guess, because yeah. they're master of horror anthologies. Cigarette Burns is like the goofiest thing I've ever seen and like the most like it's Drew McWeeny, you know, getting to write for John Carpenter and like clearly he was typing the script with one hand, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's McWeener rubbing. Yeah, exactly. Uh he might have written pro life as well, I'm not sure, but that one really stuck out as like, oh, this is the the geek. This is the guy from Ain't It Cool News. This is Moriarty writing this with one hand. Uh, but anyway, back to the great film, Assault on Precinct 13, No Irony Intended. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, the, it, it's obviously very closely lifted from Rio Bravo to the point of John Carpenter taking John Wayne's character, John T. Chance, and using that as his editor pseudonym. Uh, he also takes uh, the the name of Lee from Lee Brackett, the screenwriter, and gives that to the most you know badass Hoxie and Dame in the movie, played by Laura Zimmer and the or sorry Lori Zimmer and the Lori Zimmer character of Lee is maybe the closest Howard Hawks analog that. Uh, John Carpenter has ever made in one of his movies like she really the the way that she has that really low delivery and the insanely long staring contest like scenes she has with Darwin Jostin as Napoleon Wilson yeah. are just like incredible so like unreal uh unrealistic but in a good way of her just like you know clearly showing how how she can't just fit in with the guys but she can upstage them but don't forget she's also a sexy lady you know True. let's not forget <laughs> no well it's it also because it's like it, it also fits like kind of like this scenario mm-hmm. of like you know it's like fuck well i guess anything goes in the in this point you yeah know what i mean it's like we're we're fighting alongside the prisoners but like you know, to kind of speak where you're saying like, oh yeah, this kind of already has like a grindhouse feel. Like it, it does, and like that's what's kind of interesting about it. Like in like context of like Carpenter's filmography, but it's still like so Carpenter that it, it's still kind of like I don't know is so different from that in like my mind because it's like a mo- it's like this could easily be a very you know, as much as much violence as there is like. This could be a much more like kind of seedier like mm-hmm. invasion movie. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Where it's like kind of like the the assaulters here. Like they they they're almost like kind of obscured to the point where it's yeah. like you kind of have that classic like Carpenterian like supernatural feel yeah. to these villains, even though you know they're just normal people, you know, normal gangbangers or whatever. But it's like well, they're interracial gangbangers, <laughs> which is what makes them so strange, according That's to them. True. You know? Hey man, we if we if we you know come together, man, we could, you know yeah. we could take down all the precincts. Take down all the precincts, you know, food for thought. But uh, <laughs> so like that's that's what's interesting about it too. Just like thinking about when the first the gunshots are going through the precinct, and we see like this very like detail orientated scene of like 
just gunshots going through window after window, probably upwards of 30, like, different glass breaking sounds we hear in that scene. And then you get, like, the the nice little uh, things of, like, uh, stacks of paper being hit by bullets. And uh, I don't know, just, like, the way, like, there's no, like, people rushing in or whatever. Like, at first, it just feels, like, almost ghostly in a sense. But I guess, you know, it's Carpenter kind of taking this action slash invasion uh you know genre movie and you know make putting his horror instincts onto them yeah i mean there, there's something that was said in this behind the scenes thing about rio bravo that carpenter was actually on and one of the other people they interviewed was walter hill and he said that the town of rio bravo felt very alien you know like it's disconnected from even normal like film reality and i think that the precinct here really has that too uh, and there are certain parts of L.A. that he's shooting here. You know, all he has to do is put these obscured gangsters in front of a torn down uh, remnant of an apartment building. And like there's other suburbs, you know, there's other houses and apartments uh, like down the block and stuff. But just that empty space makes it feel so alien, despite it being also very grounded in a real 70s L.A. You know, you get that really long scene to introduce uh, I guess you would say the protagonist, uh, Austin Stoker's character as Lieutenant Ethan Bishop. Uh, and it's Lieutenant Bishop's first night out on the town. And you know, he's given this this babysitting duty of this precinct that's about to shut down. But while he's being given his orders, you just have this really long take of him driving around the city. And you just get like people pulling up in the lane next to him and clearly peeking into the car like yeah. oh, are they making a movie over there you know like uh, <laughs> it, it's really great how carpenter kind of establishes both the reality of and as you said the geography uh malcolm of the real la and then simultaneously through his pacing and through the weirdness of the characters and the way that the action plays out also just like this totally alien kind of horrific feeling too it's a good way to put it. Like he explores the geography of the real Los Angeles, and then the the geography of this like e reality of the, like mm-hmm. the precinct thirteen. Like there's even like I love like the the two kind of dopey cop characters they cut to. It's like we still can't find this place. Like where <laughs> where where the hell is precinct thirteen? And it's but it is like that does kind of add to like yeah, it's like this place is so disconnected from reality and everywhere else. It's like. It's something that the characters constantly comment on are like, you know, can't they hear like all the gunshots, you know, (laughs) going on all the gunshots that are done like with great precision in this movie, you know, just the minute long of gunshots. It's like no one heard that. It's like, I guess not. You know, no one's no one's coming through to save you. So there were uh, a couple of prisoners, as we mentioned, Napoleon being one of them. Uh, who were like you know brought in from this bus that like one guy got sick on so you know that that's who they're holding there it's not like Rio Bravo where there's more motivation of them having to hold these guys and uh, it's much easier for them to join in on the fun you have that classic almost Hoxian camaraderie uh, built into the moment where you have to break these prisoners out and give them guns so they'll help you you know and uh, there there's so many just great assists in this movie you know john carpenter's a big basketball fan you can tell he's a big assist guy you know his favorite players are like rajon rondo and uh john stockton yeah, you know? i was gonna guys, i was gonna you like know? you better mention john stockton Eddie. <laughs> guys who you know how to play the game the right way haven't forgotten 
about the fundamentals. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the, the, the scene from Rio Bravo where Colorado uh, has feathers throw the, the plot, yeah, the plant pot out the window uh, to distract these guys so that he can hop out and shoot them up and, you know, toss John Wayne his shotgun to shoot them up too. It feels like all of the action in this movie is just like a reaction to that sequence. You know, Carpenter was just so like enthralled <laughs> by that method of just like teamwork and quick editing and, you know, clever staging and stuff that so much of the action feels born out of that and out of the, the climactic shootout as well from Rio Bravo. And uh, yeah, the, you just can't say enough the C word for this movie, you know, camaraderie. <laughs> Well, also, I feel like kind of like just like the design of this movie also like sometimes will revolve around like, you know, these great assists, I guess, as a good filmmaker would do. You know, you have some sick action, you know, you really want to put it in an environment that really, you know, sells it home and like kind of like the sparse, dark environment of like the precinct 13 and kind of like, you know, you have the office and then like the jail cells and it's like, you know, once things get dark, everything's, you know. Uh, disheveled it's like i don't know it's like the focus really just kind of becomes on like these characters the you know six action moves and kind of just like yeah the pacing of the editing like i think there's a, a sequence where it's like he, he, he cuts between like all four members of uh the you know the precinct or whatever you know as they're shooting them up and it's just uh, it's an electric feeling to, you know and it's like damn the whole team's firing on all cylinders it's a uh, Carpenter really highlights that because he knows uh, that's a good feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think by like keeping up like the pace and like energy like that, and I mean just like as you're talking about earlier, the way he uses like the environment and surroundings, it's just like a powerful way to make like a low budget like mm -hmm. bottle uh, episode style movie into something that feels so huge and impressive and deliberate, and like there's an expansive world around it just by doing like. I don't know, just shooting in, in places that look up aptly like shitty and run down for it, really turning that into a major advantage. I, I love how he paces out uh, the build up to that ice cream truck shooting because you have two different scenes uh, where you just like, or I guess three different scenes where you introduce kind of each element of it. You have that guy driving around his daughter's kind of like sleazy dad who's just like, so you're going to go in there and you're going to tell her, my daddy wants you to live with us. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, all right, all right dude. Like, <laughs> all right, let's go over this again. Now, what are you going to tell Margaret? I forget. You're going to say, Margaret, I want you to come up and live with us now that Fred is gone. I want you to come and live with us now that Fred is dead. Gone. Gone. We have a big spare room all ready for you. We have a big spare room all ready for you. And I told my daddy, if you don't come up and live with us, that I'm going to run away from home. She'll never buy that. Did in the phone booth while it's all going down. <laughs> you also have the, the gangs just like kind of, you know, kind of stalking this ice cream man also yeah. set up in another scene that's, you know, in between there, you have a couple scenes back at the precinct with uh, Lieutenant Bishop getting to know the gang that he's going to have to get to know a lot closer. And for all that slow buildup, the actual shooting is so swift. You know, yeah. it's such a slow buildup. And then you think everything's okay. And then within five seconds, 
uh, you know, three rounds are fired, I guess. And it's it's truly a horrific thing that I guess like Carpenter later said he kind of regretted, which is funny of him of all people to regret something like that. But it is pretty horrific to just see this innocent little girl get mowed down. <laughs> it's not like Children of the Damned where it's like, oh, these kids are fucked up. You know, it's like this is just a little girl who wants ice cream. True. <laughs> Even though he also makes her like a little stinker and she's like not satisfied with just vanilla ice cream she's like oh i told him it was vanilla swirl (laughs) turns around to get the refund (laughs) (laughs) yeah she was she was about to complain to the you know manager and whatnot and like you know she she, you know she's a little snarky with the dad you know what i mean it's like you're right it's not children of the corn she didn't deserve it but it is just like you know hey you get your comeuppance sometimes (laughs) yeah and it's like that like that that's just very interesting of itself how that's the setup and like that guy just kind of hobbles to the police station, just stays there the whole time. But also, just I, I like that you know, I like the brutality of the gangs or whatever. I think as a weird kind of like collective villain, like this gang is, it's it's done very like I love like the opening scene where we just see them fucking split open their their forearms and put it like a little blood oath or whatever. And like mm. I don't think they we ever hear them talk to each other like at all. Really, yeah. it's barely any. Yeah. It's just. Not barely anything. It's a different effect. Just, just kind of like show like these human villains, but make them so inhuman. You know, mm-hmm. they don't have human behaviors. They're very, they're militant. They're like we love, we love shooting people with our big guns. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They don't talk to each other, but they strategize very well. As Tom Cruise would say, you're, you know, you're not one of those guys who talks. You're a doer. I like that. Cool. <laughs> Male motivation. Tom Cruise and collateral. Uh, but yeah, they they have tactics such as like putting the cars in neutral and like rolling them toward the precinct and shooting from behind them as cover, which is great. And, you know, kind of echoed in the reverse later on when uh, the the surviving few people are, you know, they put that barricade, that big sign that says support your local police uh, on like a dolly basically and just kind of use that as a barricade to trap all the people inside before blowing it up at the climax, (laughs) which is just such a great way to wrap up this movie because, yeah, it's just like, I, as you said, they're just kind of creeping in slowly. They, they shoot out the windows, and then they, they do the thing where they roll the car a little bit, and slowly a couple people inside the precinct are getting picked off, and it, it really just comes to when it's like, oh, there's like 20 minutes left. They're still outside the precinct, and then just all hell breaks loose pretty much, and I think the, the very controlled pacing of the movie, both in terms of the plot and just like the 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 scenes themselves how they play out is, is such a great way to build suspense in this movie and uh you know i i don't think it's like one of the very very best carpenter movies but it's just a classic signature carpenter great movie and uh, it's a four bullet one for me yeah i'm gonna give it four bullets as well because like it's not the best carpenter for me obviously and you know he's a young director and he's just kind of figuring things out like you said daddy this might be the movie where it seems like he did figure things out but like in terms of like in like some of his skills or whatever, not even his whole entire style, but some of like the the camera skills he has on display, like I feel like this movie kind of distills like the skills he has as a filmmaker almost more than anything. It's almost like a like a I guess like a mixtape, you know, before he goes pro. It's like these are all the like the sick moves I can do. But it's like that's not to discredit the movie because the movie is already, you know, great on its own. It's not 
you know, it's not, you know, any sophomoric work or anything like that. But, uh, yeah, there's something just super, like, I love the sparseness and, like, I think that it's just a super direct, straight line. Even though it is kind of, you know, borrowing from Rio Bravo, I feel like this movie's like a fucking bull, the way it, like, just rams through what it has to do. And, uh, you know, I love that. I love that energy. JT, what did, what did you think about this movie? I'm also going for uh, four bullets. It's like so sparse and elemental. All yeah. of the like, I feel like this is going to kind of sound like an insult, but I don't mean it as such. It's like the all of the framework of a great movie is present here. Yeah. It's just like hitting on all of uh, the elements of craft and style that I look for in a successful film. It just doesn't take it like the notch above to like the carpenter masterpieces but yeah. that doesn't that's not a bad thing they can't all be like they're not all masterpieces you need just True. some really great fucking movies out there exactly and uh th- this movie's just so effortlessly cool i mean i think the uh score does a lot in just like pushing that forth but i think since it is so sparse and pared down and you're only getting like uh, a little bit of like details about like the the gang is like sort of an entity there i think it makes like individual like stuff just stick with you a little bit more yeah and uh yeah no it's a great time you know it's funny because like i think a lot of people you know the sopranos of everyone but it's this is actually a sentiment that people had before the sopranos where it's like you know a lot of people like oh you have like a gang or whatever you know it's like all right, this is like a great display. We could have like the main villain or whatever. And he's like a big personality where it's just like, these guys are just like, just a a pure collective, just a pure, you know, walking, you know, arm in arm almost just to like, you know, almost, they feel like one person in a way. And I, I don't know. That's a, it's interesting. You know, he's so skilled that he could kind of go off the opposite instincts of like, I don't know what people would usually suggest. And it's, it's great. Settling tank. Magnesium flares. We strap the flares onto the tank. We tie them both up on that pipe. I stand in the doorway with my rifle. I shoot the flares. They ignite the tank. We blow the hell out of everybody in this hallway. Now what's going to keep it from blowing the hell out of us? You hold up that sign in front of the door for cover. Can you hit it from there? I got three shots. That's enough. Do it. What do you think I'm doing? Taking a siesta? I brought this from Dynamite. It's a good idea. No emails this week, but that's okay. You know, you 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 only have a few weeks left to email us anyway. So it's like <laughs> better get your questions in now. But, uh, yeah. We're not answering any more questions after all this. All this is said and done. Yeah. You know? uh, so that <laughs> is gonna slam the lid. On episode one of season three of Extended Clip, um, JT, do you have a, a selection for next week? Uh, yes, I do. I mean, I've just been crying all week uh, thinking about the podcast ending, uh, crying tears of freaking joy. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, no, I, I kid. Um, but I, I, the reason I've been such a flurry of emotions yeah. is I think uh, I'm thinking about finality and death Ooh. and things ending and and life and death. Damn. And uh, sometimes our favorite auteurs die and leave us with a final film. That's true. And uh, so I'm bringing to the table two final films: uh, an Autumn Afternoon by Ozu 
and then uh, The Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabusa by Fritz Lang. Damn. And that one, that's kind of like a, a backdoor sequel to when we did uh, Testament of Dr. Mabusa with uh, Ryan Swen. Just won't have uh, Ryan on this one, but uh, it'll still be great. I want to see what Mabusa is up to after sure. all those years. <laughs> all the, is he still holding it down after all these years? Uh, but that's those are those are two you know big fucking filmmakers. I'm excited to see you know how they left us. You can always count on JT to be your backdoor man. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, <laughs> Mr. Backdoor. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, you can uh, you can email us at extendedclippodcast at gmail dot com, and we'll see you next week. Anyone? Well, he threw me my gun, and while it was still in the air, he got one of them, and he got another one. Good enough! Good enough! Is he as good as I used to be? It'd be pretty close. I'd hate to have to... I'd hate to have to... to have to live on the difference.